Welcome to the Nailed It Wall. Ah! have Kevin English on from the National Academy Foundation. He's going to be telling about his story about fixing up a car, getting hands-on, his career in Peoria Unified, and where he is today. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. I'm Mr. Lane, the STEM guy. And I'm Mrs. Schofield. And I'm Kevin English from now. We are, we are pumped to have you on. Uh, we're excited to kind of hear your story, share what you're doing today as a retired educator. Today was our first day uh, of the school year, August 3rd, on remote learning. But as we start every episode, we always start off with our Nailed It. Schofield, how do you nail it this week? Well, I got to just stick right with today. Uh, you know, this is a learning curve for us as educators. The issues with, or the challenges, I should say, with working with Canvas, working with Zoom, um, you know, getting all the kids ready for that, familiar with that. And on top of that, you know, I'm doing that with eighth graders, which is different than doing that with younger kids because we try, I think that most parents want them to be more autonomous. So it was a, a challenge today. I I didn't nail the Canvas, or not the Canvas, but the Zoom meeting, my first one of the day where, you know, it's where you're doing the intros, the attendance is a little clunky, I need to really learn how to do that a little bit more streamlined, and then I got into Zoom, and I was trying to play the announcements, and I couldn't figure out how to stop announcements, and I lost the screen somewhere, and I just kind of looked a little bit frazzled, and you know, when you're trying to put a good foot forward the first first day to start the year with eighth graders, uh, that could be bad. But I have to say those kids were very gracious and kind and patient. And I was very impressed with their attitudes. Uh, so that made me feel better. But it was not an amazing first experience. Tomorrow, it's going to be amazing. You survived the day. I survived Tomorrow's going to be a better day. Yeah. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Kevin, what's your nailed it this week? So uh, kind of on the opposite end with the Canvas and Zoom um, we're on all these platforms and finally got that nailed and, and working with that. And we're doing a virtual internship actually on Canvas with 100 kids wow. across the country. And uh, we'll talk more about that. But we got that nailed and we use Zoom and Canvas and Google and all the platforms and got them all to sync together and work. And so that's my nailed it. You gotta love you gotta love those stories when uh, technology kind of comes together. A lot of our teachers in our district just learned about Canvas last Tuesday. Yeah, we had Kinders on Canvas today. We had first mm -hmm. graders on Canvas. Uh, put Zoom passwords in. Uh, it's 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 a crazy world we're in, but it, it's exciting. Uh, my nailed it was I had first grade. I don't have kindergarten, so I teach first through eighth grade, and so I had this introduction with uh, first graders, and I shared with them this this little Cartesian diver, like squid that I had with my magic finger. And they were just answering all these questions. They're like, I think I see metal. I see your ring. I see this. And just like through that zoom, like their eyes just lit up. And I did this like upside down water trick. And they're like, there's something in there. So just having those questions, those conversations, hearing the kids get excited. It was just so fun to to make those connections as an introduction that uh, something that I'll always remember. And I hope that they remember that via, via zoom. Yeah, they for sure are going to remember that. That's a great way to kick off the year. And you know, I think that's the challenge to all of us is to be able to make learning come alive like that, whether you're teaching kinder all the way to, you know, college students being able to make those connections and get the excitement for learning, you know, fired up with them. It's awesome. 
Now, as we get started, Kevin, give us a little background to your story. Are you a native Arizona? How did you get into education? Tell us, what is, what is your story? So I've been in Arizona since 73 when I moved here from Ohio. Uh, I got into education because I was a CTE student in Tucson, hmm. and career technical education student, and I was in an agriculture program, and I was one of those children that was either going to make it or break it in high school, right? So I had a teacher that... <laughs> kind of grabbed me and said, you're going to go the right direction, not the wrong direction, and uh, took me under his wing. And then uh, through that activity and being involved in the, the welding classes and shop classes and having hands on something that kept my mind going, uh, turned me around. And uh, he offered me an opportunity. He said, here's a college scholarship. If you want to be a teacher, apply for it. I thought there was no chance in anything that that was going to happen. And uh, uh, by the grace of lots of good professors at the University of Arizona, I got a letter in the mail that said, you've been accepted. So I went to UVA, became a, a student there, and then I started teaching in, uh, my goodness, 1986. And uh, I taught at Marana High School in Tucson, and I taught at Flowing Walls High School, and then moved to the Peoria Unified District and started their building trades programs for the district. I taught building trades agriculture, construction, and welding and biotechnology for Peoria. I was at Peoria High, Centennial High, and Raymond S. Kellis High Schools. Wow. And uh, I was, uh, um, I think 2006, the National Career and Tech Educator of the Year. Uh, and uh, I think it was because of our approach to project-based learning and having kids build projects and actually be involved with their hands and from ground up uh, all the way to the finish. So. We built portable classrooms, we built a golf course, we landscaped schools, we built Japanese gardens. We did all kinds of things to keep kids engaged. Wow. Now, talk about Peoria supporting like your innovative ideas. Like, did you run into a lot of like admin barriers or they just basically, you, you seem like you're at the forefront of this project-based learning that's kind of gaining steam the mm -hmm. last couple of years. Uh, we, at the beginning of it, it was a hard sell because we would have our students go pitch the projects to the principals and it was hard for them to believe kids could accomplish what they did because they were so used to them being. And the other, the, the big piece was there are 35 desks in a classroom and they're used to those 35 desks being filled. And when you say to students go to work and they spread out, um, people aren't used to that environment and they don't know how to evaluate that environment and to go, wow, is that really learning that's taking place? So it was a, it was a challenge for us to educate our administrators, but once they were on board, they carried the weight for us and they, they brought folks in. We did a lot of, lot of tours and a lot of things like that to keep people involved. Yeah. And yeah. then we got a lot of industry sponsors. I was going to say, now, how did you cultivate those uh, business partnerships as you rolled out all these programs? Yeah, that was a key. Once you have an industry partner that says, this is what we want, and even more endorses the curriculum by saying, here's the competencies that we expect when a student comes out that we want to hire for and endorses that and then says, this is what we want. Now we'll even sponsor it by buying lumber for sheds to prove it or paying for the landscape materials to donate to the school or to pay concrete for a project or a pad that, that students are gonna build. And so when that happens, the whole world kind of turns around. And when you put the industry partner on the site with the student, 
with the administration and they get to see it all happen and you get the pictures and then you celebrate it with everybody, it's a win-win and everybody gets excited. Now you talked about like career is a big thing for us is about having our students graduate from Sierra Verde. We're a K-8 school, but when they're ready to go to high school to have all those soft skills uh, that companies are looking for that a lot of these kids graduate from college and they don't have the skills to communicate, collaborate, creative, persevere, or problem solve. So talk about like some of those soft skills or kind of what was your basis of this PBL movement? Yeah, absolutely. And having, and, and we've actually invited the, the elementary schools to come watch our projects, to see what the projects were involved. Uh, and then have our students, one of the things that was really key for us is we would have our students go to the elementary schools to talk about them and to teach those soft skills to the, to the younger students. And that was beautiful for us because our students learn the competencies of public speaking and all of those things by working with the elementary students. And then they got the skills because they got to interact with the high school students and do practice projects. And that was awesome. So we, we tried to get our students in front of those students as often as we could. That's amazing. So, um, okay. So at what point did you and Deb Moore's paths cross? So great question. Uh, we passed cross when the first time I met her was when I was doing a professional development session for on project based learning for the Peoria district. And then she came to my session and we started talking about it. She taught marketing. I taught construction. Hmm. And the, the clincher for us was she needed, she was a deck advisor. She hmm. needed a male chaperone to go on her trips. And I was a skills USA advisor and I had, I needed a female chaperone. So, you know, I said, I'll do your trips if you do my trips. That works out great. It worked out great, except I retired from teaching seven years ago and I'm still doing her trip. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you don't think that's a, you know, that's no. not an accident on Deb's yeah. part, you know. <laughs> he said, you're retired, but you're not retired from this job. You yeah. Keep going with kids. So I still go on all her trips and I still help her train a lot of her students for office and some of her competition. Wow, that's incredible. So I, I'm not exactly sure. How does your program work? Like, where are your students coming from? Like, how do they find you? Or are these schools that um, are, like, franchised out and then, like, you kind of have a, the kids find the school? How does that work? So uh, I work for the National Academy Foundation. We have schools across the country. And what happens is a school like Deb's says, we want to be involved because you have the curriculum and you have the industry partners and you have the educational design that makes sense for us. And so we have schools sign up. And then those schools uh, go through a year of planning with us and we go through a rigorous process of finding advisory board members, industry partners, what's the plan look like? What does the curriculum look like? How are you gonna do project-based learning? How are the students gonna get those competencies? And then they start the second year. And Deb's been going, uh, she was at Kellis and was a NAF school. And then she went to Mountain Ridge and it, she made it a NAF school. Um, and so we've been involved with uh, her and her teaching since her days at Raymond S. Kellis in Peoria. And so that's an important piece as the schools choose to be part of NAF. But the, the thing that really brings schools is our industry connection. Um, we have uh, what we call a NAF track certification, which means students come through our program, complete everything. They have to complete a 120 hour internship. They have to graduate from high school. They have to do a career pathway program, a study. They do all that. 
they get NAFTRAC certification. And our employers say if they come out with that, they will interview them, a guaranteed interview, guaranteed moving up in the hiring process. Some of them pay them more. Some of them provide scholarships. And so that's a win for our students. And that's why the students want it, because there's a, a real advantage. And we're talking about global companies like Verizon, AT&T, KPMG, Marriott, um, and a whole list of others that say, if your students come out bigger, better, stronger, we want them. And that's why they're our employee pool. That's how we support. Wow, that's pretty cool. Now, how many, I did not know about Ridge being a NAF school. Mm -hmm. uh, I, thanks for sharing the model with us. Now, how many NAF schools are there in Arizona? Um, right now, there are four. Uh, uh, Kellis, Deer Valley, Mountain Ridge, and one more coming on. And what's interesting is I have a corporation in Tucson, and I have a uh, that's in uh, engineering and, and aeronautical, and they've reached to us and they want to expand and they'll actually support some schools to come in. And then I have a finance person that's reached to us that wants to expand in Arizona as well. So we've got some corporate support if schools are interested um, to, to make that expansion happen. So I, based on how it works, and I'm still trying to like visualize, um, <clears throat> how many different career paths or uh, not topics, but you know, careers are covered in a, in a NAF school. So Mountain Ridge is one. So what are the, some of their options, their, their career path options? A great question. So we started with five themes, finance, IT, health science, engineering, and I always forget the, that other one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's one more. Um, but the, the thing is we've done in the last two years, uh, two years ago is we went to a program of study so there are 16 national career clusters. And now we say to a school, if you have a state approved program of study, the wave of our curriculum, let you use that program of study, as long as you use the rest of our, our, our model, which is the project-based learning and the assessments and uh, the internships and all of that stuff, you can use a program of study. So we've expanded. I have agriculture academies, I have uh, auto academies, I have uh, theater art academies, but most of ours are in those five themes. But across the country, and the reason that's really happened is because a lot of schools saw success with the NAP Academy, and they said, we want that to be in our other programs as well, so that they're all streamlined and across the same board. And so that's how we've begun to expand. And then the other piece that's expanded is I have corporations now that are coming to us and saying to schools, we'll pay for it if you use NAP and we'll pay for it if you follow their model. Hmm. And for example, I'm working in Puerto Rico now and we started two schools up there that had no connection to us at all. And now we're doing uh, two AV, uh, engineering and aviation academies in Puerto Rico that are being completely funded by corporations. Wow. That is pretty amazing. I, I love hearing stories like that. And you think of like the future of education, mm -hmm. how important these business partnerships are. Now, where do you see, I mean, you, you grew up with some, like, you know, teaching, like where, you know, college is not necessarily that next step for a lot of your students. Like they would just go right into the field. Now, with people seeing the amount of debt people are racking up in colleges, where do you see the future of, of education and business partnerships and kids graduating from high school with these skills? Yeah, absolutely. I think this corporate partnership is going to be a huge piece of the future puzzle. 
and especially if we're looking at this virtual world, um, everybody is going in that direction as well. And now it's an opportunity for us to bring corporate partners to the table to start delivering content virtually. You know, it used to be, and you guys are in the classroom, you get it, a guest speaker, you've got paperwork to fill out, they've got to set a time, they've got to come to your classroom, all of that kind of stuff. And then you've got to do things to engage your students with those speakers. In this virtual world, I can now pull somebody up on Zoom and they can be in my classroom immediately and they can give me the 20 to 30 minutes and ask detailed questions. And we just did this with our virtual students. We had a business panel of three people. I had one from Dallas, one from Lenovo and one in North Carolina, and another one from Worldwide Technologies in Missouri. Uh, and so my kids got to hear from three professionals, three different parts of the country, answer the same questions. Mm. It was phenomenal yeah. because we had this opportunity to have a live discussion. That is amazing. So with the, you know, the, everything kind of shutting down and coming to a screeching halt with COVID. Um, are there any new technologies or career paths that are on your radar that might not have been that you guys think you might absorb? Um, because all of a sudden things are going to shift. There's going to be new opportunities, new skills that we kind of didn't know that we were going to need to have. Is there anything that you've seen kind of popping up that is on your radar that's like a, this could be a, a future career that wasn't even something we had thought about. So if, if logistics is becoming a big one mm -hmm. with all of the, the shipping and the packaging and everything going that way, um, I've got a lot of folks that are saying we need logistics programs. Hmm. That's something a year or two ago I didn't even hear in a career in tech education space and logistics. The other thing we really focused on was just these skills of virtual environment how to work in a virtual environment and so we spent a couple of our sessions with our students just talking about what how, what it is to work at home what it is to work online how do you run a team from your house when you don't see those people at all in a physical sense how do you manage projects across online uh, how do you keep deadlines going and all of those kinds of things so the actual working in a virtual environment is just a huge skill that students could could use. So imagine the projects you used to do in your classes with the students where they would build a small project and you still now have them do that at home in a virtual thing. I, when I was teaching engineering, we'd build bridges or we'd build towers out of straws, those kinds of things. You know, we did it with students in the classroom and you could see it go and grow. How do you do that in a virtual environment? And how do you make that exciting? And how does one student build that piece and another student build on top of it and then bring it all together at one time. What a cool project that would be for young students. Um, and so I think that's the kind of stuff that's our challenge. How do we engage these, these people with, uh, with all these techniques and get these things to work that in a, in a non-traditional way and with cameras, we can do it. Um, one of the things we faced uh, in ours, one of the challenges was is I have a lot of students that are, uh, in impoverished areas and they're in places that are very needy. And one of the things we faced is they didn't want to put their, their selves on camera because they didn't want us to see what was in the background. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I had students that uh, one I could see every day was, was in a closet and, and the door was shut because everybody else was in the house and that was the only quiet space that was available. So, mm -hmm. You know, those are the kinds of challenges is how do we get students to, to engage? The first thing we did is I provided a digital background 
and I found that I got more kids to come on camera after we did that. Um, and so just those kinds of tips and tricks that, that are helping teachers engage kids and get to see them. That's pretty awesome. I mean, you think about all of these things going on, it's, it's hard to grasp, you know, you know, in this digital age, you know, all those obstacles that they're there, but they still want to learn. They still want to get that knowledge. They want to better themselves, mm -hmm. yet uh, still deal, still, st still dealing with that social stigma mm -hmm. um, via this virtual world. And uh, I, I love hearing stories like that and, you know, to get them engaged and, and because people, you know, talk about equity in education, people have that passion, you know, just having that opportunity to really succeed. So what, um, with collaboration, like what have been some, the, the more successful things to all of a sudden, cause you have to have collaboration with your program. I mean, it's a key element there. Um, so what have been some successful ways that you guys have done that to keep the, the heart and soul of what you guys are doing alive? You know, it, it's funny that, that you look at it and you go, the program has been a huge success for all these reasons, but then you ask people what they remember and you ask students what they remember. So one of the tricks for collaboration is I'm here in Arizona. Um, my other colleagues are in other parts of the country, the facilitators. And um, we just did a virtual conference and we were trying to figure out how we'd keep adults and students engaged in our presentation. So I went to Target in Arizona and I bought a dog toy. And, and you can see it on camera, but um, I bought a dog toy and my partner in Oklahoma City went to the Target and bought the same dog toy. And then, so we started the conference in, or in the presentations and I threw my dog toy to her virtually on camera and she caught it in Oklahoma. Oh, that's cool. And people are like, what just happened? <laughs> You're magicians. <laughs> We're magicians. And then when we did it on our, our program with our students, one student stopped and said, okay, how did you do that? And I was like, this, this isn't rocket science, guys. It's gonna, you're going to figure this out. But um, it was that. And so we, we called him Bob in the, in the session with the students. And then at the end of the thing, one of the things that the students said was, we loved Bob. We loved you guys tossing him back and forth. Because when we changed topics, I'd throw Bob to her. She'd throw Bob back when we changed to a topic. And it just became a way that they were just excited to see that one thing. And so, mm -hmm. it, but it was something we could do that was visual, that was different. Um, and so we tried to do those kinds of things to keep them involved. The other one was uh, we've done a, done a lot of stuff with collaboration on uh, project management softwares um, for the adults, the smart sheets uh, and the Trellos to try to keep everybody on task and what's going on and what the next topic is and that kind of stuff. Um, but really it, it's about the you know, I guess if you're a great teacher in person, you're going to be a great teacher in, in online because you can get those students excited and, and see them on camera and say, I have one young lady that used to, used to wear a, a NAF shirt and I'd say, thanks for doing that. That's awesome. You know, and she connected right away or, uh, you know, those kinds of great teaching techniques we used in the classroom when we could see them. We still got to do those when we're online. Mm -hmm. Just got to be, a, you just got to endure and endear yourself to those students just like you did when you were in a classroom with live kids. I agree. Now, what is your exact role? Are you an instructor with NAF? Like, are you curriculum? Like, what is your role? I'm a senior director for knowledge management, which is a long title, which means- That's a great title. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, 
I do curriculum, professional development, and uh, I also do uh, special projects like the, the Puerto Rico project, this virtual internship we just did. Um, and, but most of my job is centered around professional development for teachers and curriculum for the students. That's pretty cool. Now, is there one project that just kind of stands out to you all these years? It seems like, I mean, you got, you got quite the track record between what you're doing today and what you did in Peoria and Tucson. Is there one that just kind of sticks out to you? I, I think this, this one we just are in the middle of and completing, which was this career readiness experience, which, which was this virtual experience. Um, I think this one stuck out because a lot of folks said, you can't pull that off in a virtual environment. You can't get kids engaged in it. Industry partners aren't going to respond to it. They're not going to. Traditionally, internships are uh, you take a student and you watch them and you, you work with them day by day in a physical space. Um, we've switched some things around and we asked the students to assemble their own community of professionals in their community. Grab one to three people and make your own, like a dissertation committee or a review committee. And folks said, oh, that's, kids aren't going to do that. It's not going to work. Uh, I had 40 students in the first session, 100 in the second, and I had uh, about 183 business professionals step up with those kids and help. That's exponentially crazy, right? That, that you would think they would do that. And I had folks from the mayors of city, uh, the mayor of Parkland um, in Florida that had the tragedy uh, not long ago. She was uh, on as one of the community of professionals. Um, I had, and then I had some great stories about how connected they got to kids in a three-week environment. Um, so that was, it's a huge win to have that kind of involvement. I know we talk a lot about virtual environment. You built rockets with your eighth graders last year to finish the year via Zoom. Deb Moore was doing all these marketing things. Oh gosh, like she, she did so many cool things virtually. And mm -hmm. she's, like, she's like, we can still do this. Like it, it has not stopped. And the students even took it further to do things outside of her realm. And I just love hearing those kind of stories there. Now, you talked about that educator that kind of took you under his wing. Where does your passion come from? I, I just love your energy, uh, what you're doing. You're 30 years plus in the classroom, retired. Where, where does this passion come from? I'm not normal. <laughs> <laughs> Join the class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am not normal. Um, I just love watching, watching students, adults, or kids get it. I love the light bulb moment going off. I love kids showing people that what they said they couldn't do, they could do, and they do it in ways that we didn't think were possible and just blow their minds and, and blow the minds of the folks watching them and to build things that I never thought I could build. Um, I just get excited about that. And I get excited about seeing those faces on camera or in person, um, making those connections. Uh, it, it just excites me. And, and then I like to, I like to mess with people. I like to to, to do things with my students that mess with their minds, like throwing the ball across the states and, and make things and make people think. So for me, it's a challenge because I, I just want to, what's that next thing I can do? What's that, that thing that I can do that's going to get your attention, that's just going just gonna to make that day for you? And, and how's that going to kind of translate into how I can get you to learn better that day by pulling that off? And that's just a cool way to approach teaching and a cool way to go. You know, I'm, and one of my mantras at NAF, and we, we say it all the time is today we're going to change the world. How are we going to do that? I love that. That's kind of, 
that, that's the kind of stuff that keeps and my teacher uh his influence on me was he believed in me although a lot of other folks did not and challenged me to do things i didn't think i could do i built a greenhouse in his shop at 16. um it was a 10 by 12 greenhouse and he took the effort got the dump truck from the school loaded a greenhouse on top of a dump truck and drove it 40 miles to a county fair and let me enter it in a fair where I got the grand champion. But wow. he went the extra mile to make that happen. He believed in it. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're in a position, you and, know. Well, first, okay. first, I think we're going to talk about the amazing feat of moving a greenhouse. I you know. know like, They're very you fragile. Know, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know <laughs> kudos. like a kite if yeah. you think about it. You know? Kudos <laughs> to you for becoming the grand champion. But I think the real victory was this teacher moving at 40 miles. But, yeah, yeah, driving a, an old rickety dump truck down the freeway. Um, How do you not get pulled over, actually, if you, if you really think about it? It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. And and that stuck with me that he was willing to do all of that. I mean, most people would say that stresses me out and it's not going to happen. We'll take pictures and we'll make a poster board. And he said, no, we're taking the whole thing. And I'm like, <laughs> it sounds like you would have put it on a wagon. It's if like, you had what's, it next? A I know. <laughs> what's next? I know. But you know, it's interesting when you think about it, when, when kids are invested in what they're doing and your program is it, it, it's built around kids wanting to do what it is that you're able to give them, right? They're seeking that out. Uh, what you can achieve when you're, you don't have to talk them into what they're doing. They have that, that inner drive. I mean, kids are so unstoppable in that. And really um, I'm sure that they blow people's minds over and over because kids with an idea, a dream and the drive to back it up, um, that's, those are the things that change the world, you know? Absolutely right. And one thing I learned early teaching is we tend as teachers, because we got such big hearts, and when a student stumbles onto a problem, our first instinct is to save that student right away, mm -hmm. to help them get that answer. And what I've learned through project-based learning and all of these is don't save them. Mm -hmm. Deb and I did a project with students, and she was doing the Empty Bowls project, and one of the kids came to us and said that it, like noon of a day that we we're supposed to have the spaghetti dinner. They were responsible for pulling the spaghetti dinner off. They were the ones to supposed to get the spaghetti donated and the sauce donated. And at six o'clock that night, we were cooking spaghetti. They called us at noon and said, we don't have it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and Deb and I looked at each other and we said, it's a six o'clock. You gotta have it or this whole thing fails. And we're not going to go buy spaghetti and we're not going to make spaghetti. It's on you. And we, we said goodbye. Was there spaghetti? Six o'clock, there was a spaghetti dinner. <laughs> you know what, though? Have you seen, that reminds me of, remember, in The Most Likely to Succeed, where that teacher steps back and the parent steps back and there's this kid who's bitten off way more than he can choose, or choose and he, he wants to do this really elaborate project and there's a deadline. It's this showcase night. And he doesn't get it done. And the teacher said it was the hardest thing to step back and let him fail. Same with the parents. They, she's like, it was his project and it, he just had to fail. And it was so hard because the kids just crestfallen in this part. But then you see later on, the teacher makes a special time for him in the summer. He uh, allows the kid to come in, complete the project. And there's that closure and he gets that moment, but he didn't fix it for him. 
You know, he didn't fix it for me. He let him work through that and had a really painful learning experience. And, and that's how you grow. But through that learning experience, he, he talked about like not trying to control the whole project Mm -hmm. and like, you know, those soft skills of like working together, accepting people's ideas. And, and those are the amazing things. Like when, when you give students the opportunities and the opportunity to fail. Mm Yeah. Yeah. And that's that teacher instinct. We just got to back up for a minute and say, okay, we got to let this play out. Good, bad, or ugly, it's going to play out. And then we're going to make it a learning experience, whatever happens. Mm-hmm. And that is the toughest thing for us with those big hearts. You know, it's like, I want to, I, I could, I could buy spaghetti and put it in the trunk and be ready. But you know, if I show up, I save that kid and what did they learn? So, you know, it, it's, it's that kind of stuff that, that I think is a inherent in the way that we teach today is we've got to give ourselves that pause to reflect and say, what's the lesson? No, totally. And you look like a man who loves spaghetti myself as well. I was like, I was like, I want that spaghetti dinner to be served, <laughs> you know, like uh, at, at all costs, but figure it out, figure but, it out. But you know, it's not only that they, it's not only that they learn, but if you fix it for them, for instance, the spaghetti dinner, then they don't really walk away feeling that what they were contributing was that important anyway. And it kind of takes away from their, um, their feeling of importance and what they bring to the table. And I mean that literally and figuratively, obviously, but you know, yeah, thank you. I'm here all day. (laughs) So, but you know, like it really is a, a thing where you're, you're taking away, um, their, their opportunity to say like what I'm doing makes a difference. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, what all teaching kind of shifted to in the spring is we had them doing work, but we really didn't want them to fail. We wanted them to kind of have this cush spot because it was such difficult uh, circumstances that everybody had to shift into. And so we really cushioned any possible fall that kids could have. And I would hear kid after kid after kid say, what's the point in doing this? It's not going to make a difference. And they want to know that what they're doing makes a difference, even if they are not, even if they don't get a good grade, even if they, that's not the point. They want to know that there's a reason that they're doing it. And so these kinds of things, like if you had solved that problem with the spaghetti, then they would feel like I could have done nothing and it would have had the same results, you know? And I think the challenge for teachers coming in is students were in that environment in the spring. Now you're starting again and now it does matter in a grade and how do they, you get students to realize this is serious and that somebody's not going to come in and say, yep, we're just going to let you, you do this until we figure it out in January. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think you're going to have a lot of skeptical students because they're going to say, well, we got a free pass last time. I agree. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Now, your students from the NAFE programs, do you see them more going into industry or do they go off to like some of these top colleges? Like wh- where do you see who, who benefits more, colleges or industry immediately? So it's an interesting uh, dilemma. So when our founder founded NAF, he said this was one of his biggest failures because what happened was is he grabbed students off of the streets of New York and went to schools and said, I'll finance this program if you give me these students, students went into these internships in these industry finance industry, and instead of going right to the entry level jobs he had for them, they saw something more. And they said, we wanna go on to college. We wanna be these finance experts. We want these bigger, better jobs. And so 
uh, he had entry level in his mind and the students said, now that we've got a taste of this, we want the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's one that's interesting. I have students, uh, if you look at Deb Moore's program at Ridge or the folks at, at Kellis and Peoria, we have students that are AP students. We have students that are C CTE students. They're all different levels. And they all seek for different reasons where they want to go. I have a lot that are going right into school uh, and have, are using some of the connections they've got to get to school and get scholarships. We have a couple others that have done internships and those companies say, we, and, and this is the interesting thing about what I love about what we're doing, is in Puerto Rico, the company that sponsors them, this is cool, is if they hire a student as an entry-level worker, if the student's with them for one year, they will pay for the student's education the rest of their life, tuition and books. Wow. Well, if you remember when we went to school, it was the athletes that were recruited that got those big scholarships. Now it's industry saying, come into our industry, stay with us, do a good job, and we'll pay for your school. So all these students that are struggling financially, that are looking for all these scholarships, if they go in and they get these internships and they do well, and the companies hire them six months, a year later, their tuition's paid for for the rest, from graduate, from undergrad to graduate to PhD. Talk about solving problems, you know, and like, uh, and talk about even moving up the further the chain. I, I think we remember we, we had a speaker about a female who worked at John Deere for a year, and then John Deere paid for all of her oh, yeah. like college, all of her college, and she came back, and she's she's just moving up, moving up, uh, working within, and yeah. so that, that's pretty amazing when you think about industry, school partnerships, how industry has has, has shifted and. And they look at these high school grads so much more different. Even Google's been talking a lot more. They'll look at like those Google certificates over a college degree, even a master's degree. They kind of like bump them down a bit. Right. They want those industry competencies and those industry certifications. And then they want to know that that student has a passion for that industry and is willing to excel. And, and they'll take them all the way. And they'll end up being what I'm hoping for when I leave is some of the students we're working with and alumni we're working with. Um, are the next CEOs of those companies and they expand the programs because they see the success because they were part of it. And yeah. I, I think that's, that's a huge win. Totally. Oh, sorry. Now, Go ahead. Now for the direction of NAFE. Now, do you, do you want to just add more and more? Like, are you guys going to become overwhelmed with so many different career paths or is it like, do you want to bring in more students, more schools? Like where, where do you want to see NAFE kind of go moving forward? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. And, you know, we have a lot of folks that want to expand uh, and, and look at numbers, but we really want to look at quality and where what we're looking for, we're calling it place-based. Where are we going to make the biggest income or in impact? Is it going to be in a community that has a demographic that's, that's struggling, an industry that needs employment, where we can build up the whole community? And so now we're looking at community-based initiatives um, and looking at the employers and saying, yeah, these schools are in need, this community is in need, you're in need, let's make this happen for everybody. Uh, we used to go to schools and say, be an academy with NAF, and, and now we found that our most successful stuff is when it becomes a community effort and it becomes a, a corporate effort, and then they, they make the program successful. Then another school in the next area says, well, those guys are doing it, we want to do it. And that's how we're starting to really grow. Um, 
we're at about 120,000 students across the country right now. Wow, that's, that's impressive. That is impressive. So how does that, so, you know, we, we obviously looked you up, checked out your credentials, you know, did a little digging. And so you we also- call that research. Yeah. Research. I know. I just, it made it sound digging, like more- Digging uh, sounds. No, it sounds more investigative, you know, like it's as if, you know, it made us sound sleuth-like, but you're right. It, it's research. Um, so you also are a board member on ACTE. Um, you're a, a VP and a board member there. Um, um, I, I'm not yet. I, oh. I ran for president-elect last year. Didn't get, I was, a, I was a VP about 10 years ago. Oh, okay. And now I'm back involved and I ran for president-elect last year. I didn't win, but I'm running for a VP of uh, the new and related services division for ACT. So I do serve for them and I do a lot of volunteer work there. So can you kind of tell us about that organization? Because that's something that Deb is really big into as well. Yep. So ACT is the Association for Career and Tech Education. They represent career and technical educators from all grade levels, it, it, from elementary up, that have anything to do with developing career competencies and careers for students. So we have junior high programs and high school programs and college programs and community college programs across the country and those teachers become members of ACTE. Uh, and then ACTE provides professional development and materials to help them be successful. The other thing that they do, and, and this is where Deb and I spend a lot of our time, is lobbying and advocating for career and technical education so that funding like Carl Perkins and initiatives like the JTEDs in Arizona happen. Hmm. So we do a lot of a lot of work on the ground to to get this in front of folks that make uh, policy makers and decision makers. Now, my question is, when do you sleep? I know, really. <laughs> um, not much lately. And this virtual world is killing me. Uh, it's 24-7 online. I'll, I'll quit off after an hour and a half after this, shut these screens off. But, you know, now that I'm home all the time, where do I go next? The TV screen, right? <laughs> for three or four hours. Yeah. And then when I leave there, I'll go, okay, I got to check my email. So then I go to my iPad or my telephone and I'm on that screen for another hour and a half. It's the screen thing is just craziness. You, um, how do you really disconnect from the world? That, that was one of your worries. As we started today, you're like, you're like, my email is just blowing up. This is day one. You're like, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to find that balance. And that's, true. and that's the thing. It's just everyone. I think we've created this instant gratification uh, time through COVID that you send the email, you know, someone's close to their computer, mm -hmm. you know, they're not out and about living their life. Yeah, that's, that is absolutely true. What, like, so when all of this hit, how did you guys immediately pivot and stay afloat and kind of keep things running till you guys regroup to do what you have created now? Like, what did that look like? Yeah, it was a, uh it was, it was a difficult time, right? Because schools started closing. Folks are like, how are we going to develop, deliver curriculum? How are we going to do our work? We, I was traveling 90% of the time. I was never home. I was on the road at a school. And so I would deliver all my stuff in person. Um, and then we had to shift. And how does that look like? And then we started to shift. And then we started to ask questions like, how are kids being affected by this whole thing? And that's when I, I, my, my peers and I said, kids aren't going to be able to get internships. Businesses aren't hiring kids. They aren't going to be able to go to work. Who's addressing that issue? How do we do that? 
Hmm. And um, that's when we asked that question and shifted to some of the things we're doing. Uh, the program we just finished, uh, we served 110 kids total. Um, what was cool is we paid each one of those kids $600. That came because we repositioned money that we would have used for travel or if we couldn't develop a PD. And I got my leadership to say, let's reposition those funding, that funding, so we can deliver this. So wow. we gave every student that completed a $600 gift card as compensation for their work. Wow, that's huge. How much do you think, you know, going forward when um, things calm down, right? Ideally, we want there to be some kind of like a, a resettling where, you know, we can be in person in some, in some places and then, you know, some virtual. What do you think that's going to do for your organization um, as far as like what it will end up looking? Because now you've just put this whole virtual internship in place, uh, which you wouldn't want to scrap per se, but what does that look like going forward? And that, that's a great question. In fact, I'm putting together that what that looks like for the fall. And we did a summer thing where it was three weeks, but now students are going to be in classes, some in person, some one day, some not the next day, they're going to be online. Um, and I'm looking at, well, let's extend our time from a three week period to a four week period. Uh, let's put these certain presentations on certain days so that students can do it. Um, let's not worry about how much time they're, so how do we structure it? We were looking at a certain amount of hours, 80 hours for them to serve, but during school, can they do that? Because they're going to be online and back and forth and who knows what their home lives are going to look like. So we're, we're going to try to do that. But I think what, what's interesting is, is we're probably going to adopt a, a whole lot of less staff travel and designate things to a regional place and have folks and then we moved our whole conference to an online conference this year uh and it, next year we're actually scheduled for here in scottsdale in arizona uh and we had a great virtual conference um so i think you're going to see us do that conference but in person but also offer it like this where we're going to do podcasts live from the conference those that can't attend can still attend and really try to make it a hybrid. I think that's been some of the most powerful like PD this summer. Mm -hmm. we, were, we were bummed when ISTE canceled in Anaheim this summer. Really? And then we were holding out for November that they kind of pushed that back. And then they just said, everything's going virtual. And, you know, we're, we're going to get so much out of it. But you, you miss that person to person feel. Now, how do you feel? Have you adapted to the home life that you're, you're ready to accept not being out there on the road and making those personal connections? No, you can tell by me. I'm a people guy. I want to be with everybody. I was going to say, I was like, I, was like I, got that, I got that sense from you. I, I want to be high-fiving everybody around me and, and then uh, having a, a, a Diet Coke at the end of the day, right? Um, I want that, that personal connection. And that's, that's the hard part of this whole thing is how do we get that? And, and how do we do that? And, and what are some of the fun things we can do? But I think we're, as we develop, I think you're going to see smaller groups get together and then a lot of online stuff. So, you know, you'll have the conference staff and maybe some of the presenters in one place. And then, uh, you know, the folks that are local could come and then the other folks. One thing I, I think that's really going to affect us all is schools are not going to allow. And that's one of my concerns is student organizations like skills USA and, and some of the TSA and some of the things you guys are involved with students where you would go and robotics, you know, first robotics and the Bex robotics and all those, 
our students, they love to go to those places, mm -hmm. but schools are not going to approve field trips to go anywhere. Yeah. They're not going to allow out-of-state travel where I put 15 kids on a plane with Debbie Moore and go to, to Nashville for a, a week-long conference. That's not yeah. going to happen. Yeah. So, or even like, even think of the first of like mentors coming in to volunteer. Yeah, and I was what, like, yeah. all of a sudden when school's open, it's like, you've lost like, you know, the tutoring mentorships, the robotics mentorships mm -hmm. where they come in and kind of give back. And those are uh, the foundation of so many of these organizations that all of a sudden the doors are closed because of COVID. Right. So how do we, how do we pivot those organizations and get those kids still excited? How do we do a virtual robotics competition you know, that we can do. Um, it's it's going to be those kind of pivots that are going to be really important is how we think through them and how we keep our kids engaged. And, and the same thing is with teachers. Um, you know, my son's a teacher in the, the Tolleson district, and he's like, you know, if I got to go to both online and in person. I want to choose one or the other because I don't think I can do a good job at both. So, you know, teachers are got to make decisions too. Um, and yep. so, how do we help them? You know, it's interesting though, if you think about it, that, you know, our kids like this generation, they're such a, they're, they're very acclimated to a screen life, you know, and all of a sudden we basically put them into what you would think would be their dream world, right? Like they're sitting in front of like a device or like, cause they're, they're typically so engrossed, but it's funny because then you realize uh, the, it's not this, it's not necessarily, um, as appealing to them as they thought of. And, you know, my son had, you know, unlimited gaming for the most part this summer because there's no place to go and all that. And they get to a point where they want something else. They want something deeper. And I think that there's a lot of kids going into school this year with a different attitude about online learning because they're so bored and they're just hungry for something. So like in the spring, they weren't really feeling it. You know, there wasn't a lot really being asked of them, but they, um, they liked that free time and they liked that, that feeling. But I think they're so burned out of that, that they're just desperate now for like some real engaging learning, you know, which is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And I think you're, you're right. One of my, my peers has four kids at home. And he was just going, how am I going to keep these kids busy? So just being the, the crazy guy I am, I sent him a couple of challenges for his kids over the internet. One of them was I said, I want you to build a Rube Goldberg machine out of nothing but what's in the house. Love and it. I want you to go through four rooms and I want you to videotape it and send it to me. And so his kids did that and they had a great time putting that thing together and it went through the couch and up over the table and into the kitchen and you know their mother probably wasn't a happy woman with the pots and pans and all that stuff but they did a great video and then when he sent it to me i said okay now send it to the rest of our staff and challenge them and their kids to do the same thing love it so that's just the kind of stuff i think we got to do i was on the national lego advisory board about 10 years ago now and they gave me a Mindstorm kit, one of the first ones. And it was sitting in my closet. And I was like, what am I going to do that? I sent it to another peer who had an 11-year-old and needed, you know, just some activity. Now he's sending me videos of all these robots he's building. So that's the kind of stuff I think we just really got to get these students into. You know, you can make it. You can take a picture of it. You can share it with me. I can challenge you in ways that we haven't challenged you before. 
I agree. We love the Mindstorms. I mean, yeah. talk about talk about a product that has infinite potential when put in the hands of a kid, you know, and, and their ideas kind of come to life when you think about coding, engineering, Legos, brick, mm-hmm. brick masters. Now, is there any board that you have not been a part of? Um, I tried to be as active like as board man. <laughs> no, uh, a couple others, but, uh, those were the fun ones, right? The ones that kept us active. And, and we went, what was interesting on a Lego one is that we went to, they'd spend a week with us every summer trying the new products and trying new things and getting our input of how it would work in a classroom. And that was really cool. That is I mean, cool. There's nothing like we always say the sound of uh, the the brick, you know, turning on that little sound every time you get that. Downloads a new program. Yeah, downloads a new program. It's just like the coolest sound ever. And when it would be FLL season, we'd just be like, ah, oh, we miss that sound so much, you know. Yeah. Well, and the challenge for us now is how you do we write a grant for every kid to get a kit? How do we do that? Let's do it. You know. <laughs> You know people. You know you know policymakers. Let's make it happen. That's how we make that happen for kids where they open up their door and there's the kit and here's the activity. Or a teacher says, We're gonna build a bridge today, and they open the door and there's a box with all the balsa wood and the glue. Right? And and those are the things that make me excited is how do I sell that to a corporation? How do I sell that to folks and say, Give me the funding to do that and let's try it with a hundred kids? Um I think that's the, the challenge that teachers have. And I think if we could turn that key, I think we're opening a door to a whole new world. No kidding, for sure. Was that an Aladdin reference? Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think we just went Aladdin there. We, we, we've gone on so many different uh, magic carpet rides on this podcast. Uh, we can't thank you enough for coming on, inspiring us. I'm so excited for teachers all around the world to listen to this and be inspired about what you can do when you challenge students to fail, give them those opportunities to work with business partners. Uh, I had a blast. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh my gosh. Oh, I think we have to do this again and, uh, and dive deeper into, uh, into the world that you are. Plus your new, your new program. We would love to hear how things go with that. You know, what's uh, where it is in a, you know, in a few months, um, just kind of touch base with you and see how that's blossomed. Absolutely. I appreciate the time and I, I'm passionate and I share your passion for it. So let's, let's figure out how we can change the world together. I love it. I love it. As we always say, people, if you can be anything, be kind. Now, if you loved hearing stories about Kevin's greenhouse driving down the highway, <laughs> him inspiring students in Puerto Rico, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Every Tuesday, the latest episode of Nailed It Wall will be downloaded to your phone. Now, if you're on Twitter, you want to see pictures, videos of our lives with our students in this virtual world, make sure you follow us. You can find me at Mr. Lane, the STEM guy. And me at a positive proton. Kevin, are you on, are you on Twitter? You must be on Twitter. I am not on Twitter. I'm old. Sorry. <laughs> do, you, do you have any social media to plug? Uh, I do have a uh, Facebook page. Nice. All right. Well, follow Kevin English on Facebook. He, he's the board man. All right. Thank you very much for coming on. It was an honor.